Will you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 32, Psalm number 32, and I want you to have a Bible in your hands so that you can follow along. So we've made some available. These brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. It's marked for you at Psalm 32. That Bible is our gift to you. Keep that. Bring it back with you next week. Read through the passage that we're considering and others this week as well. But Psalm 32 today. The questions, uh, how are you doing and how are you, are, we all know, generally throwaway lines that amount to rhetorical questions. We often ask, how are you doing or how are you in passing, when in fact we don't have time to listen to the answer. But let's pretend that you're asked how you are and the person asking it actually has time to listen. Or better yet, You ask someone how they're doing, and you take the time to hear them out. Now, if you're asked that, what will you say? Or if you're asking it, what are the kinds of things that you expect to hear? I think it's safe to say that most of us, when we think about how we're doing, we think of our circumstances. How's my health, my finances, my job, and so on. We tend to think of our well-being in terms of our physical, material circumstances. But what about how we're doing spiritually? The truth is that more specific question, how are you doing spiritually? Or something like, how is your relationship with God? Those questions are infinitely more important than how's your job or even your health. Now, it's not that things like our vocation or our physical well-being aren't important. But rather, it's instead that our spiritual health makes our experience of those other things and everything else either better or worse. In the series that we're in now, titled, What's God Got to Do With It? We've seen that God is involved in all of our circumstances, even the difficult ones that the Bible calls trials. We saw last week from James chapter 1 that depending on our reaction to those difficult circumstances, the outcome can be either what God intends, namely that we grow in Christ-like character, or it can be what Satan intends, which is that the trial become a temptation and even sin. The sinful reaction we have to our situations may take a number of forms, and all of them have negative consequences for us. We may become angry, resentful, bitter, despondent, and a long litany of harmful responses. And friends, that's just considering what's been done to us. Things and people that have come into our lives that test us and how we react determines whether we succeed or fail. But of course, there's not only what's been done to us, there's what we've done ourselves which if not dealt with properly, can also have long-term negative effects on us. That is, when we sin, if we fail to deal with it as God instructs, then we will carry the guilt around with us long after the root sin has been done, as we then continue to commit the residual sins of hiding and denying and worse, seeking to paper it over by our own efforts rather than by God's remedy. Friends, hear this. Your past, 
if not put in the past, will affect you in the present. And I encounter many people who are carrying around spiritual baggage from past experiences and sins, all because they've not processed those as God graciously offers and instructs. And today, we're going to see from Psalm 32 some of the effects that our past can have on us until we deal with those things biblically. Let's ask God then to help us. Father, here we are. We're gathered and we are quiet before you because we want to hear from you. Lord, we need to hear from you. You have the words of life. We need your word to guide us, to instruct us, yes, to chide us and convict us so that we move in the good direction that you have laid out for us. And so, Lord, we ask you to help that good purpose to be achieved in our time together. Lord, grant us clear minds so that we're not thinking about the many distractions that could pull away our attention. Open our hearts to the truth that you have for us. May we receive it. May we act upon it. As a result, may we please you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see, our past does not have to control our present. It's not inevitable that I'll have to live my life with all of the effects of what I've done or what's been done to me. The consequences of both my sin and of being sinned against can be mitigated by following God's prescription for both of those. In Psalm 32, we have the testimony of a man who sinned willingly and defiantly and he suffered the personal consequences. And yet his story starts with the words of verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When the Bible speaks of being blessed, it's most often associated with our relationship with God. And we think of being blessed foremost as how God has blessed our circumstances. I'm blessed with good health, or I'm blessed with a good job. But notice what the Bible says, just a sampling of what the Bible says about the blessed person. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That's the blessed person, his spiritual life, his relationship to God. Further, blessed is the one you discipline, Lord. The one you teach from your law. Blessed are those who find wisdom. Those who gain understanding. So if we're going to have blessing, which is that glad state of being in proper relationship with God, we're going to have to be people who deal with anything that would hinder that. Anything that would get in the way of that, anything that would separate us from that, needs to be dealt with, needs to be processed, needs to be removed. We're going to come back to verses 1 and 2 a bit later. But for now, just know that this wonderful state of being blessed is the good report of someone who had sinned against God and others in a very big way. And his story teaches us a number of things. I have the first of those in the outline that you should have inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out. 
where we see, first of all, that our sin affects us. Now, I agree with many other commentators, including my Old Testament professor, Dr. Robert McCabe, who some of you know. I agree in understanding that Psalm 32 is a report from King David regarding what happened with him after he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then fathering a child as a result and then seeking to cover it up, ultimately orchestrating the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. One further consequence of all of this is that the child that David had with Bathsheba died. But still, David would not come clean. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He finally did confess, according to verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That is what resulted then in the blessed state that he describes in verses 1 and 2. But David went, now hear this, at least a year before he dealt with it. He had tried to cover it up, and then he tried to forget it. But God graciously would not allow that because God does not allow his children to wander without chasing them down. If you're wandering from the Lord, if you're refusing to deal with it, whatever it is, and you're not being chased down by the Lord, being convicted by him, that's a very scary position to be in, my friends. Because God, as we'll see later, disciplines those he loves, those who are his children. If we're not being disciplined in a disobedient state, then what does that say about our relationship with God? God revealed what David had done to the prophet Nathan. And he sent Nathan to confront the king. Nathan did so, and the Lord used that to convict David and to lead him to confession and to repentance and therefore to that blessed state a forgiveness that's described in verses 1 and 2. But before David wrote Psalm 32, his testimony about how he had held out, about how that had affected him, but then how he ultimately was blessed by following and obeying the Lord, before he wrote Psalm 32, he wrote Psalm 51. So Psalm 51, the events of Psalm 51 come before the events of Psalm 32. So they're out of order in that sense chronologically. Well, Psalm 32 recounts David's story of how he tried to hide his sin. Psalm 51 is the story of his confession and repentance. And Psalm 51 tells us a number of things. One, that he appealed to the Lord. Once he had been confronted and he had been convicted after this over a year of trying to run from it, he appealed to the Lord, have mercy on me, O God. Cleanse me. And he understood the true nature of the sin that he had committed. In Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only, have I sinned. Now just read that and ponder. Think about the grievous nature of the sin that David had committed. Think about all of the people that David had sinned against. David had sinned against Bathsheba. David had sinned against Uriah. David, as the king, had sinned against the nation. And yet he says here, against you, God, 
you only have I sinned. It's not that those other people are not victims of what David had done. It is this that ultimately, friends, hear this. When we sin, it is always ultimately against God and most importantly against God. And David understood the true nature then of his sin. And having been given this gracious gift of conviction from God now about this, he desired a change in his whole person. So in Psalm 51, again, he says, create in me a pure heart. You've heard me say over the years, the heart in the Bible is the control center of the entire person. So create in me a pure heart now so that my whole being will be changed. As a result of this, he became deeply concerned about what God is concerned with. God's program and God's will for his world. In Psalm 51, he says, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. God's purpose for his people. And then in the middle of that confession, David sought the privilege of being a lesson in his life to other people. So here he's got all of this that he's done and he's tried to hide. And now not only is he no longer going to hide it, he's going to publicize it. He's going to write it in Psalms. And those Psalms have been memorialized for us for millennia now. So in the middle of his confession, he seeks the privilege of being a help to other people. He made a promise in the midst of his confession in Psalm 51. Here it is. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Lord, I'll tell my story so that other people can learn from my experience. Psalm 32 is David making good on that promise to teach transgressors the way of the Lord and thereby seek to turn them back to him. David wrote Psalm 32 for you and me. Our sin affects us. We see that in the life of David. I want to see a couple of ways that our sin affects us in your outline. The first is what we've done affects us. Our own sin that we commit affects us. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. An article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling says of this passage that David testifies that one reason we don't experience the joy of forgiveness is because of the way we handle sin. If we're silent about our sin, we will groan. We feel as if our bones are wasting away, our strength dries up. Now that's not to say that all of our suffering is a result of personal individual sin. We shouldn't assume that sin is the cause of all Suffering, brokenness, and hurt. But friends, we should always consider if and how sin may be involved. Knowing God's word, we should consider that a very real possibility. But like David did at first, we are often silent about our sin and we fail to recognize that our suffering is a result of our own sin sometimes, perhaps often. We all know how rare it is for any of us to admit sin Right away and outright. 
This goes back and has a long and inglorious history back to the first human couple and the first sin. And God confronts them and they immediately begin to blame shift. Make excuses for their sin. It's the woman you gave me, said Adam. It's the serpent you made, says Eve. And yet, given that long history and given the fact that we all tend to do that, we're still shocked when we encounter blatant denials, cover-ups, and deceit. It's as if you see someone who breaks a window and the person flatly denies it to your face. You can almost feel your brain flip upside down. We've all been in those situations. You witnessed actions that were plain and simple, and yet the person says, no, I didn't do that. And we're hardwired with that tendency. But David says the blessed person is the one with no deceit. That is the one who comes clean with sin. And David shows how he violated that principle and how he learned the lesson the hard way. And he menses no words. His silence had cost him greatly, resulting in tremendous trouble. Notice how well the language paints a picture with words. We can feel it viscerally when he says, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now, Sometimes we say things like, I was dying of thirst. But the truth is, most of us don't know what it really means to be really thirsty and have no access to drinking water. Probably the closest I've come to that it was a missions trip we took several years ago to Mexico, and it was searing heat. And we were working outside, helping do some work for a church there. And in Mexico, you know what they say, don't drink. And so I didn't have access to our own water at the time, and so you're just sweating profusely, and you're depleted, and you were just completely parched. But David knew something about this in the in the heat of summer and being out in the, the deserts of the time, what it really was like to be thirsty. He says, that's what it was like for me when I was hiding my sin. That's how it affected me. His misery was full-orbed, affecting not only his soul, but his mind, his emotions, his body. Keeping silent about his sin affected his entire person. But God did not leave him there. Verse 4 says God's heavy hand on David kept the seriousness and the consequences of sin ever before him. Now what a gracious gift that is to David and it is to us as well. Do you understand that? Do you understand that it's a gift of God to be shown the error of your way? But we don't look at it that way, do we? We want to shoot the messenger. That would be me. So, you know, please refrain. Or who, or whoever, a brother or sister who comes and says, hey, I'm concerned about what you're doing. Well, who do you think you are? What made you so spiritual? Rather than saying, is there something here that the Lord is teaching me and wants me to understand? It's a gracious gift to David. It's a gracious gift to us. It's a gift of God to lay his heavy hand upon us in order to convince us to turn from sin. And friends, you see that concept elsewhere in Scripture. Hebrews 12, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. 
God does not want and will not allow a believer to remain in sin and keep silent about it. And why? Because sin destroys. Sin destroys others. Sin destroys us. And so God lays his heavy hand upon us to awaken our conscience so that we'll turn from sin. David learned that and we do well to learn it also. We do well to live it and to not be silent about our sin. Now we're going to see if we have time today, if not next week, but we'll see how the cross and the gospel help us to be able to do that. Help us to turn from what we normally and naturally do. Blame shift. Make excuses, deny, and actually face our sin and deal with it God's way. And David eventually submitted to God's heavy hand. And we see his complete confession in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, Lord, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So here he is. He's saying that my body was affected by this. My whole person was affected by this, by covering this, by holding this in, by trying to deal with this my own way for over a year. David was experiencing the psychosomatic effects of sin. Suke in your Bible is a Greek word for soul. And soma is the Greek word for body. And psychosomatic means soul body effects. Immaterial and material effects. That is, the spiritual affects the physical. You try to hide from God. In the title of today's message, at the top of your outline, you can run from God, but it's going to have consequences, dear friend. Emotional, physical, spiritual consequences. But when David does this, when God does this gracious work and confronts him with this, and then because he's God's child, it resonates with David, and David turns. Now he goes from calling him God in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51 and verse 1 that we had on the screen earlier, David says, Have mercy on me, O God. He moves from that, from that kind of distant, more distant title for the Lord God. And he moves from that in Psalm 32 in verses 2 and 5 to refer to him as the Lord. And if you'll notice in your Bible, verses 2 and 5, the word Lord, all four letters are capitalized. Sometimes in your Old Testament, you'll see the word Lord with a capital L and a small O-R-D. But in verses 2 and 5, you have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Why is that? Because whenever you see it in all caps, it's a translation of the name for God, Yahweh, which is the personal name of God in relationship to his people. David has moved from the distance that's created by sin always. Even though you're God's son or daughter, there's a distance created And he is now moving back to the intimate relationship with God, Yahweh, in his relationship with his people. What we've done, friends, affects us. It must be dealt with God's way. Secondly, what's been done affects us. 
So there's what we've done. In the case of David, the story is well known. But then there's what's been done to us. Now, please note that what's been done to us may not be sin. What's been done to us may just be not to our liking or embarrassing so that we're ashamed. We might be ashamed of what we've done, just embarrassed by it, maybe not sin, or by what's been done, but sometimes by being associated with what others have done or some undesirable characteristic of our own. So I remember when I got my first uh, job, it wasn't my first job, I started working when I was 15, but my first job in the computer field in my early 20s. And I was working at a, a place in Detroit, and my boss was a guy with who had been was successful, thus he was my boss, and he had a company car and all of that stuff. And here I am, you know, in my early 20s, trying to start out and mingling with people who have risen through the, the corporate world. And I remember my boss asking me one time uh, where I lived. Now, most of you know that I grew up in e-course, and I usually add to that, and I live to tell about it. <laughs> and I remember, I remember being embarrassed about that. I remember being ashamed of being from the wrong side of the tracks. And I said something like, I live downriver. And <laughs> no, he wouldn't leave it at that. You know, there's a lot of cities downriver. Which one do you live in? So I finally had to, had to come clean. But there are some times where we're just ashamed, not about something we did. We're just ashamed about something we're associated with. That is, there are thing, often things we hide that have profound effects on us, but which we have no responsibility for. Our guilt for sin affects us, but our shame for other things does as well. And I'm going to mention one, uh, what may be for some uh, very personal, very hard to hear, but to make the point that rape victims often feel shame as if they've done something wrong. Simply because they've been involuntarily associated with someone else's wrong. Almost universally, rape victims say they want to take a shower because they feel dirty having been violated. You see, friends, if we carry around what we've done or what's been done, failing to process it biblically, it can affect us. And in fact, I will go further. It will affect us. So we must process it. We must deal with it biblically. I'll give you another illustration from my own life. As I was preparing for this and I was thinking about what has happened in my own life that I might have carried around that I need to deal with biblically or needed to deal with biblically, my first response was nothing. You know, I'm very grateful for my upbringing. My dad was a pastor. He passed away when I was 11. He's with the Lord. I'll see him again. My mom was a wonderful Christian lady. She's with the Lord. I'll see her again. I was taught the gospel. I was in church from the time I was a baby. I went to a Christian high school. I've just had, in my mind, a charmed life. And a blessed life by the grace of God. But then I started to think about it further. And I realized that the reason I really couldn't think of anything right off is because God has allowed me to process the stuff that's happened. (laughs) 
See, virtually everybody has had stuff that's happened. But if we processed it, we can put it in the past. And thanks be to God, that's what's happened for me. I've been able to put it in the past so that when I think about it, it doesn't come to mind right away. And I have to actually think about it. And I did. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit so that you understand that I don't live in just in the pastoral ivory tower. And it is the case that all of us need to process what happened. So within my family, there is alcoholism. Now, God has protected me uh, from alcohol. In fact, I sometimes say, God, I'm 56 and I've never had a drop, a drop of alcohol. That's not because I'm a great guy. It's just because the Lord arranged my circumstances. I was not around it. Now, I say that drop of alcohol thing. I've never had one. And then Kim reminds me that years ago, we were at a place called the Ground Round. And we had dinner. And after dinner, I wanted something that tasted sweet. And the, the, the waitress says, would you like something, a coffee or something? And then she says, how about an Irish cream? And I say, that sounds good, cream. <laughs> and so I get an Irish cream. And we're with some friends. And I'm just talking away. And then I take a drink of this. And I go, boy, that's, that's some coffee. <laughs> and I tell Kim, hey, ta- take a taste of this. And and she takes a she takes a taste and immediately spits it out and she says that's liquor and i say to her how do you know the taste of liquor which by the way i still want to know the answer to now i i've been protected from that so i can't say i've never had a drop but my family has alcoholism, and, and if, if I had imbibed, then there's a very good chance that I would be as well. But alcoholism, as you know, can really affect families. It affects people differently. Some people react violently. I had a family member who reacted violently when drunk. We'd come home at night and really terrorize our family, break things in the house in the middle of the night. On one occasion, uh, this individual came into my bedroom and picked up a television set and threw it at me. I was in my bed. I rolled over, and it missed me by a few inches. There were a number of incidents like that. But they don't come to mind for me unless I force myself to think about them. Now, why? Here's why, and here's the point of bringing all that up. Because God has allowed me to deal with it. God has allowed me to process it. In the midst and in the aftermath of all of that, I was confronted with now, how do I deal with this circumstance? How do I deal with this person? What does the truth of God's word teach about him, about me, about the Lord in this situation? And I had to, in that situation, apply a number of principles that I learned from God's word. I had to see the individual as God sees them. I had to see an individual who was doing harm, but I had to see an individual with compassion through the eyes of Jesus. I had to see biblically that but for the grace of God, what? Right? I had to, I had to see that so that I would not then live my life with hatred that becomes bitterness, but rather in turn, God can allow me to minister 
to the very person who's done the harm. Friend, we have to process it. Whatever it is or whoever they are. What we've been done, what we've done affects us. What's been done to us affects us. And I say in your outline, how we respond affects us. You see what some people do to their own detriment, and perhaps what some of you have done, is you say with regard to what you've done or what's been done to you, that's in the past. I'm a new person in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, I don't need to deal with that. Now, see, here's the proper response. It's not, I'm a new person in Christ, therefore I don't have to deal with that. Hear this now. It's, I'm a new person in Christ, now I can deal with that. You see, being new in Jesus means now I can face it. I can process it the right way. So rather than running, rather than hiding, rather than denying, I deal with it. I say in your outline, we must respond to it. One commentator has spoken of the various ways that people respond to their sin. Our obvious, at least to ourselves, failure to live up to the shoulds and the oughts of our lives, instead of leading most of us to confess our weakness and need, causes many of us to hide our failings behind a facade of apparent success, happiness, and control. This person says, 12-step groups are full of people who followed their sense of powerlessness and fear of being discovered as they really were. They followed that into years of hiding their fears in a variety of destructive behaviors. Alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual compulsion, eating disorders, gambling addiction, and many, many others. Do you know that's what's going on with a lot of people? They're hiding through that kind of stuff. Because they're not dealing with it or them biblically. He goes on to say, those of us who make our home within the church have fared little better. The idols of independence and perfection have prevented many a struggling Christian from admitting his or her fears, failures, and helplessness until the crisis was so great that it could no longer be denied and it broke out with utmost destruction for all of those concerned. I've seen that multiple times over the years. So that the wound that's been inflicted or the wound that's been self-inflicted, either way, it shows up in our sin. It shows up in our response, which is often sin. Have Have you ever thought about this? Why do we naturally respond to sin with sin? But that's our, that's our natural reaction. How many times have you read that people who have been abused abuse? Right? Why do we do that? Why don't we respond with determination to help others rather than with debilitating hatred of others? But see, it'll only happen. It'll only happen if you process it God's way. So friends, we must respond to sin and we must respond to it biblically. We must respond to it biblically. Verses 1 and 2 say, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. You've got in those two verses 
three words for sin. You've got transgressions. You've got sins in verse 1. You've got another word in verse 2. Uh, it says sin in verse 2. Who sin the Lord does not count. But actually the Hebrew word there is a different word than in verse 1. And so it's sometimes translated iniquity. Transgressions, sins, iniquity. And the three words for sin may in certain contexts connote different reactions to God and his commandments. Transgression is an act of rebellion and disloyalty. Sin is an act that misses, often intentionally, God's expressed and revealed will. And iniquity is a crooked or wrong act, often associated with a a conscious and intentional intent to do wrong. The three words in those two verses don't signify three different kinds of sin because they overlap. But David's telling us that the forgiveness of sin of whatever sort it is, whether against God or man, whether against great or small, whether conscientious or inadvertent or whether by omission or commission, the answer to that, the forgiveness for that is to be found in God alone. The nature of the sin is not as important as the blessedness Of the forgiveness. There are three verbs that express in those verses the absoluteness of God's forgiveness. In verse 1 it says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Literally, whose transgressions are carried away. It's an act of removal of sin, guilt, and a removal of the remembrance of the sin. And then blessed are those, verse 1, whose sins are covered. That's the gracious act of atonement by which the sinner is reconciled and the sin is a matter of the past so that the Lord does not bring it up anymore as a ground of his displeasure toward us. And then verse 2, does not count, expresses God's attitude toward those who have been forgiven as being justified. Just as if I'd never sinned before God. This is why the Bible tells us in your New Testament, friends. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, failing to deal with it will create this distance between ourselves and God. Between ourselves and others. It will haunt us and follow us around like a weight upon our shoulders for as many years as we refuse to give it to God. But we can do what 1 John 1, 9 says. Now, we'll deal with the second major point next week. But for now, perhaps you have a question if you're still awake in your mind. If I've already been forgiven by God when I came to Jesus, when I became a Christian, when I got saved... I've heard you say, Pastor, many times that when that happens, your your sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. So why do I have to do 1 John 1, 9? Well, here's why. Many years ago, I did a sermon on forgiveness. I don't expect you to remember that, and some of you weren't here. But the Bible differentiates between what theologians call forensic forgiveness and sanctifying, familial forgiveness. Forgiveness, forensic forgiveness and familial forgiveness. Forensic forgiveness is that act of God that happens when we come to Christ and we are justified and the righteousness of Christ is given to us. But then familial forgiveness is the ongoing forgiveness that all of us need 
from those that we wrong, but most important from God that we offend. Even after we are Christians, as we still sin. And we go to the Lord as in 1 John 1, 9. And we seek to have our intimacy restored with God. Just like with David, referring to him, have mercy on me, O God. But then when he finally comes to him, he's Yahweh. He's the Lord. The family relationship has been restored. Now, friends, both what we've done and what's been done to us require the same solution. What we've done obviously requires confession and repentance. What's been done to us and our reaction to it likewise requires confession and repentance. Not that it was done to us, of course. But how we're dealing with it or failing to deal with it God's way. Repeat of either what we initiated in our own sin or how we've responded to what others have initiated. And repentance can be done. It can be done because I'm just going to give you this line and we'll continue it next week in your outline. It can be done because our Savior delivers us. Our sin affects us, but our Savior delivers us. We'll see that next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for answering our prayer to meet with us, to teach us. Lord, now help us to act upon what you have provided. Help me to do that. Help every one of us who name the name of Jesus to do that. If we have anyone here who doesn't have a relationship with you and they're carrying around the guilt of their sin and are liable for the punishment for their sin into eternity, as all of us are apart from the Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself by your mercy, your grace. And Lord, work in the hearts of your people so that we're willing to look. We're willing to look because we are new people. We now can deal with it. So we're willing to look at it, confess it, face it, so that we don't drag it around and carry it around and so that it's a burden upon us and causes us to be ineffective in the things that you've called us to do. Lord, we need your aid to do that. I pray that many of your people will begin that process even this week. May we bring glory to you in the way we respond to the circumstances that you bring our way this coming week. May we intentionally Remind ourselves that we are representing you in all that we say and all that we do and the attitudes with which we do it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.